feel like we can have an intimate conversation right here. This is awesome. Um, hey, really, though, you made it. Good job. Thanks for coming. Um, I just want to mention this. As you see our volunteers this morning, if you could thank them this morning, many of them here at 7 a.m., ready to rock and, and get things ready for us. So um, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to be in part four of our series uh, that's taking us through the New Testament book of James. And um, I hope you're loving this series. The book of James is a gem. It's one of those hard-hitting books, incredibly practical, written by the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And uh, the impact that this book has on our faith, I believe, leads us to have the kind of faith that makes a tangible difference in the lives of, of people. That you'll be able to look around, even after a passage like this morning, and be able to ask yourself some questions about your faith that you'll be able to say, does my faith really have an impact in, in the lives of other people? And so let me do this, uh, since it snows pretty much every Saturday night, let me just kind of review where we've been uh, in this series. So in week one, we learned this. We talked about, what do I do when I face trials? Um, what do I do? Because we all face them. Maybe you're facing one right now. Maybe you're in the midst of one. Maybe you're just coming through a season of a whole lot of trials. But what do you do when you face them? We also saw in chapter 1, we saw, well, what does it look like um, when I'm tempted? What am I supposed to do when I'm tempted? And James gave us some great teaching on that. In week 2 then, um, we saw the difference between being a listener and a doer. Um, we saw the difference between being a person that just hears God, God's Word and then the person that actually says, okay, that was important, and God, you're wiser than me, and so now what do I do? And so we asked this question. We said, when God speaks, how do I respond? Are we the kind of people, and we said this, and we say this a lot as a church, we want to be eager to obey God's Word. And so, if God, if you speak, Lord, we want to follow you, and we want to know what that means, and we're imperfect people, but God, we want to keep being eager to follow you and listen to what you say. And then in week three, we did this. We looked at the first half of chapter two, and we saw that James made it very clear that followers of Jesus Christ should not show favoritism. That of all the people on planet Earth who shouldn't show favoritism, it should be followers of Jesus. And, and so he made it very clear that, that there's God and then there's people, like all people. There's not like God and then class one, class two, class three. No, James says, no, we shouldn't show favoritism because when God looks at people, all people matter to God and he sees all of these people that are dearly loved by him. And so we talked about one of our five values as a church, all people matter to God. And we said, Lord, who do you want us to see? And then as we see them, how do you want us to see them? Lord, would you help us have the kind of eyes that when we see people, as we go through our day, we would actually see them as God sees them. So then this morning, um, we're going to actually go to a question that's a, um, it's a, it's a very important question. Uh, the, the question that we look at from the text this morning has eternal ramifications, and here it is. Is my faith genuine? Do I have a real faith? Do I have an authentic faith? That's where James is going to take us. I remember when I was in high school, I started working um, at High V. You know, they would employ a 15-year-old, which I thought was pretty cool. And so, me and a bunch of my buddies, we applied at one of the local High Vs. It was they just built it, and so they they were employing a lot of us high schoolers. And I remember I got employed in the seafood and specialty meat department, which was a great place to work uh, because I learned a whole lot of information about different cuts of meat and all these kinds of things. And I learned about varieties of seafood that I would have never known. And got to work with customers, and so it was a great growing experience. Well, there were a couple products that I still remember to this day that, that, were, that were big sellers for them. Um, one of them was oysters, uh, particularly around the holidays. People would come in, and they would want to have a pint of oysters. 
And I remember just how disgusting it was, though, to be behind the counter and to open this five-gallon bucket of oysters. And all the oysters had risen to the top, and they were kind of all crusted there at the top. And you'd take a ladle, and you'd push it in and try to mix them in with this clear, sludgy, jelly material. I might throw up just talking about it. It was horrible. But here's the deal. Those gray, slimy oysters, they were the real deal. Absolutely, 100% the real deal. We also sold another product, though. It was called imitation crab meat, and it was a big seller as well. Imitation crab meat went like this. It wasn't crab meat, but it smelled like it. It smelled like seafood, but here's what it was made of. Imitation crab meat, it's made of starch and finely pulverized white fish that has been shaped and cured to resemble the leg of a snow crab. Sound good? But it's not genuine. It's imitation. Feel kind of cheap even serving it, wouldn't you? It's imitation crab meat, it's fake. This morning, what James is going to do is this he's going to look at a group of people and he's going to say, This are you imitation or are you real? Are you fake or is your, is your faith the real deal? Like, is it authentic? That's where he's going to take us this morning. So, I want to do this. This passage, I just want to say to you on the front end, this is one of those passages that's going to lead us not to just have impact for tomorrow, not just for this maybe to trickle into next week. This is one of those passages that really impacts us for all of eternity. The stakes are that high when you turn to James chapter 2. But I also want to prep you by saying this. When you get to James chapter 2, you and I, verses 14 through 26, it's also one of those passages that's known as one of the more confusing and even controversial uh, passages in in the Scriptures. And here's why. We hear us talk about this a lot at Brookside. We talk about the Gospel. We say that the Gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. We say that the Gospel means this, that you don't have to do certain things in order to achieve a right standing with God, that Jesus Christ has already done everything that you could ever do in His death and resurrection, allowing us to have a relationship with Him. That's the Gospel. A verse like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 summarizes it well. For it is by grace, it says, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here in James chapter 2, though, it causes some people to kind of scratch their heads because in James chapter 2, verse 24, James says this, listen to this, a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. Now, if you put these two passages together, Ephesians chapter 2 and James chapter 2 alongside each other, you can see how it could be confusing. So much so, Martin Luther, a key leader in the hugely influential Protestant Reformation, the 16th century. You probably learned about him. You've heard his name before. You heard his name in world history class. He said this. He said, James mangles and opposes the Scriptures. Pretty strong. He even called James the epistle, the letter of James. He said he he called it the letter of straw, largely because of what we're going to study this morning in James chapter 2. But as you'll see today, James and the Apostle Paul writing Ephesians 2 are not contradicting each other. It's not as though you've got James and then you've got the Apostle Paul and they're having a cage fight that's theological. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. What James is going to do is he's going to add value to the gospel. He's going to bring truth and insight into what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ and what is the, what's the relationship between faith and between good works or between de- good deeds. So it's so valuable. Now, 
we'll see this though. The contrast between faith and deeds, it's a contrast. It's not that contrast is what we're going to see this morning. It's not that. But what we will see is a contrast between what is true faith and what is false faith. And you're going to hear James is going to link inseparably good deeds with faith. He's going to say that false faith is faith that does nothing. There's no action. It's absolutely useless. It's like you saying, I really care about the poor. All the poor, they matter so much to me. But you never do anything about it. You believe it, but it never impacts your behavior. That's what James is going to address. So, if you've got a Bible, turn with me now. Let's look at James chapter 2. I'll read through it, um, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask for God's help, and I think you can understand why now. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll see what God has for us in it, okay? So James 2 verse 14, he says this, What good is it, my, my brothers and sisters? Remember, he's writing to believers. He's, he, half the time he calls them dearly, uh, dearly loved brothers and sisters. So my, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, to that person, hey, go in peace, you keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the, scriptures, uh, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous when she, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body is without the spirit, so faith without deeds is dead. Pray with me, Lord. We just come to you now. And Lord, we do want to be a people that we respond well to the Word of God. And so, Father, I just pray that you would protect my words this morning. I pray that I would be able to speak your words, that I would be incredibly clear, and that we would have very good insight into what exactly is the gospel, what exactly does it mean to have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for that reminder. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, it's perfect, and it refreshes the soul. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that this time in James 2 would refresh the soul. God, speak to us. We invite you to do that. We wait eagerly for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look at verse 14. James starts this section with a question, a very good question. And he's wanting his listeners to reflect right out of the gate on a, this critical subject of eternal significance. And so he says this, Hey, what good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds... Can such a faith save them? James's point right out of the gate is the useless nature of such a claim. And he has done this throughout the book. So he says it, he kind of sets something up, and now he's going to illustrate it. So look at verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is, is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, hey, go in peace, keep well and warm fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good 
is it? Now remember, remember the context of James. What did he just talk about? He just talked to us earlier in chapter 2 about favoritism. So James has on his mind, how does Jesus see people? He, he knows that he's, he's, he's seeing them as not by classes of people. No, no, God looks at people and he says, man, they're all my people. They're, 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 they're dearly loved by me. And so James is saying this, hey, if you just have great wishes and good intentions, know this, those aren't very helpful. They're not going to transform anyone's circumstances. There's no poor person that's ever going to approach you at the end of their days and say, wow, thank you so much for your good intentions. No, they're going to thank the person who actually followed through with action. Nor is God going to commend us by simply saying with our lips, oh yeah, I have faith. But our lives are the very opposite. We need action. Wishes do not transform circumstances. So to say or to claim one thing without action makes our claim meaningless. That's what he's illustrating. Now look what he does here, and he just does this brilliantly throughout this book. Now to the application of his illustration, verse 17. He says, hey, in the same way, faith by itself, like you can think of it this way, lonely faith. Faith just out there on its own. Lonely faith, if not accompanied by action, it is dead. Matthew chapter 25, I want to take you there. Jesus, he brings the same thing to life. James, and remember this, when you hear James speak, he echoes Jesus all the time. Remember, he's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God until after Jesus rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15. But after Jesus rose from the grave, oh man, James was in. He believed in who Jesus was. But we also know this, James was around Jesus all of his life. James had heard Jesus talk about eternity and faith. And so these things, you can understand how they influence the teachings of James. So Jesus then says this in Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So they will be known, in other words, by what, by what they practice. Now, no, no, now know this, anyone living in this time, like a Palestinian farmer at this time, would have known exactly what, what Jesus was talking about. They would have been very familiar with the process of separating the sheep from the goats. This would have been a practice they would have known about. So he says this, Jesus, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This seems to be a goat, by the way. He now then goes on to say that those who will enter the kingdom, his kingdom, are those who, you're going to see it in the text, are those who do certain things. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, he will say, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. And you were action-oriented. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer. So those are the people on his right. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we? And, and know this, you and I would say the same thing as 21st century followers of Jesus Christ. We would say, when did we, Lord? When did we see you, Jesus, a stranger, and invite you in? 
When did we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and and go to visit you? Then the king will will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. These are the words of Jesus, church, and these are jolting words. Verse 44. They also then, so those on the left, will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will reply, I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, think about this. Based on these two passages, someone could argue rather convincingly that, hey, Matthew, according to Matthew 25, according to James chapter 2, I enter into God's kingdom like I'm made right for, with God for all of eternity by clothing the poor, visiting the prisoners, and inviting those in need into my home. Can you see how you could think that? Do you see the tension here? But before we go too far down that road, we've got to let other scriptures speak to us as well. Notice what Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He's a religious man. He approaches Jesus at night and he says, Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you will never enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now think about this. An infant, what does an infant do? An infant doesn't do any work in order to be born. John chapter 3 is saying, hey, it's not work that allows you to have new birth. In other words, What's referenced in Matthew chapter 25 and in James chapter 2 is not the ground of entry into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. The groundwork to a right relationship with Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ. And it's what Jesus Christ has accomplished through his life, death, and then his resurrection. The beginning place, the groundwork to relationship with Jesus, it is Jesus. We are justified Through Jesus Christ. We're seen made right by God through Jesus Christ. So Matthew 25, James chapter 2. Those good deeds, those deeds, what are they? Church, they're evidence that a man or a woman has been made new by the work of Jesus Christ. Think about it. You and I could serve the poor. It could be the sole mission of our entire lives with absolutely no connection to Jesus Christ. You could serve the poor every single day of your life with no connection. You could deny the existence of Jesus Christ and serve the poor. So James is doing something very important in this passage. He's saying that the presence of these things, of good deeds, cannot be used to argue the presence of faith, but the absence of these deeds may be used to argue the absence of faith. It's a contradiction of faith to claim to have faith but to ignore those around you. It's a contradiction of faith to claim that I have faith, but it never shows up. You can never tell. If you and I came to a person in need and we were asked the question, so you come up to a poor person, they're they're begging right in front of you, 
and you were asked the question, or I was asked the question, what's more important, food for today or eternity? Jesus Christ. You know, the majority of us would say this. We'd say, oh, well, skip the food for today. You'll be okay. But boy, put your faith in Jesus Christ because that's an eternal thing. That's more important than the sandwich. But know this. For you and I to understand the priority of the gospel in a person's life doesn't give us the right, though, then to sidestep the actions. Instead, when we truly understand the gospel, what does it do? It motivates us to care about people. So when the gospel, when Jesus Christ ignites my faith, then I'm propelled to say, okay, what does that look like? Okay, now I want to care for people. It was the work of the gospel that led a man like William Wilberforce to fight against to fight to the end of of slave trade, to put it to an end. Why did he do that? Well, here's why. Because William came to the point in his life where he realized his desperate need for God. He realized, okay, I am so far from God. God, you've redeemed me. I didn't deserve it. I can't earn it. But you redeemed me. And as a result of that, you know what he did? He got to work. Think about what gripped the heart. What was the core belief that motivated Dr. Martin Luther King? It was his faith in Jesus Christ. You look around the world, you look at the care of orphans, you look at the care of widows, you look around the world at the establishments of many hospitals. It was the priority of the gospel that motivated many of these noble actions. Brookside, think about it. We build a care center. We are going to start a service in a jail. We're expanding to a new location. These are actions not to earn the gospel, but these are actions that are motivated because of the gospel. Because you're a church that you say, God, you've been so good to me. And since you've been so good to me, I can't wait to begin to to share that with my actions. I'm going to live out my faith. It wasn't these actions that created faith in William Wilberforce. It wasn't these actions that created faith in Martin Luther King, but it was their faith that propelled these noble actions. So the gospel is much bigger than good deeds, but good deeds are the expression or they're the outworkings of the gospel. Back to James. Look at verse 17. He says this. He says, in the same way, faith by itself. So like, again, lonely faith. Faith by itself If not, he says, accompanied by action, he says it's dead. Again, he's such such strong language he uses. But someone will say, verse 18, oh, you have faith? I have deeds. So in other words, you go about your business and and we'll be good. You focus on faith and however you're going to define your faith, and and then I'll focus on deeds. I I think of it this way. It would be like showing up to a car lot, brand new cars all over the place beautiful. They're shiny. They're not covered in snow. They look really good. And they're in those nice straight rows. You know how they get them just perfect. But it would be like going up to that car lot and looking at the cars and realizing not a single one of them have any tires on them. James is driving home the point and he is saying, hey, you cannot have faith without action. You cannot have faith without deeds. Faith gets expressed by what you One commentator put it this way. He wrote, James is dealing a healthy blow to any suggestion that faith and deeds can be separated. Let's keep going. Look at verse 18, the second half. James says, hey, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I... I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? This is a strong point. You believe that there is one God? He says, good. 
Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. And again, remember, James grew up with Jesus. And so James knew that, that Jesus taught with authority. James also knew this. He knew that when Jesus taught, not only were the hearts of people oftentimes moved, but he knew this, that there were even spirits that were moved. And so in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He's teaching with power. People are amazed as, at his teaching. And then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, he comes on the scene. Look at this. Mark chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, he cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then he says this, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now was this demon making a commitment to Jesus right there? Was this demon saying, Oh, Jesus! Right here, right now, you, from this day forward, you are the leader of my life. No, not at all. What was the demon doing? The demon was giving a verbal confirmation. Jesus, I know who you are. I am not ignorant of who you are. I understand who you are. And James is saying this, that you can know who Jesus is, but that doesn't even separate you from the demons. They not only know who Jesus is, but their knowledge of him makes them shudder. It moves them to convulse with fear. And so here's then the takeaway at this point. Information is great, but information doesn't always lead to transformation. We can know something in our heads and never let it affect our hearts or our actions. You know, if you say to me, hey Jeff, those, those double stuffed Oreo cookies, mint flavored please, um, those double stuffed Oreo cookies that you like and you know, when you take that cup of milk and when you dip those in milk and when you eat those, if you say to me, hey, I want to tell you a little bit about those cookies. I, I, want, I want to be really clear with you, Jeff, because I care about you. They're full of processed fat. Those cookies are going to clog your arteries. you got to know this. Every time you get your little sugar buzz with those, that your body loves that, and your body's going to crave that. Your body's going to want more sugar if you give it sugar, and that's not going to end well for you, Jeff. Now, I can hear that, but from time to time, I may still choose to eat the cookies. It's great information. I don't even, I don't even, I believe you. But that doesn't mean that it's going to lead me to a place of transformation. Like that information is great. I, again, I believe it. But it doesn't mean it's going to change my heart towards the cookies. Even worse though, wouldn't it be? If I listened to your words and then I verbalized, you're right. I will never touch another Oreo cookie again. Wouldn't it be a tragedy, though, if you caught me in the kitchen and I'm holding that cup of milk and I've got a fork submerged into it and i got a big old smile on my face? Now, see, that would be a major contradiction, wouldn't it? My actions would tell you in an instant what I thought about your words. Look back with me at James chapter 1. This is so important, this verse. James 1, verse 18. Everybody realize this. This is before... James gets to this passage in James chapter 2. So, in James 1, he's already prioritizing it. He's prioritizing what the gospel means, that it's the source of new birth, not by works or by good deeds. Verse 1, 18, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, He, Jesus Christ, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Here it is, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So don't miss this. He, Jesus, chose us. 
He chose. He gave us spiritual birth. We didn't do that on our own. And then he says that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So God is the one who spiritually gives you and I birth. He's the only one who can awaken our need for a Savior. That's why you pray prayers for those in your lives who don't know Jesus Christ. That's his, in, that's his initiative. He initiates that. But then the, the intention of Jesus is this. So after I put my faith in Jesus, that's going to result in something. My response to, oh, I have this need for Jesus Christ. And when I accept Jesus Christ, when I truly do authentic faith, that's going to pr produce, there's going to be a result as after me receiving faith that's truly alive, that's not dead. And so James is saying, hey, it's one thing to have information, but it's another thing to have that information have you. It's one thing to, ah, I hear it. But it's another thing for that information to grip my heart. And for out of that, for me to say, oh, I want to have such a sincere faith, not to earn, but because of who you are, Jesus, the outflow of my life will, will, will be good things. Information and the acknowledgement of the facts alone, though, we have to realize this, everybody. And if this is you here this morning, please hear this warning from the Scriptures. Information and the acknowledgement of the facts alone is, is dangerous. It is unhelpful. Even the demons pass that test, yet they will remain eternally separated from God. A lonely faith is a dangerous faith, and a lonely faith is a dead faith. So James, he's looking at his brothers and sisters, his church that he loves, and he's saying, examine your faith. It's a wise thing to do. Verse 20, now he calls in some witnesses. He calls in Abraham and Rahab. Verse 20, you foolish person, he says. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? What did Abraham do? You remember this passage? Abraham trusted God. He followed God's lead. And then as his faith was, it was definitely seen in his action. And then God provided for him, right? Provided a sacrifice. Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the Scriptures was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And then the, the jolting verse 24. You see, James says, that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now that might seem like, again, a great contradiction. I mean, didn't the Apostle Paul, didn't he start the book of Romans by telling us that no one, like absolutely no one is justified by the works of the law, yet James is saying that Abraham is justified not by his faith alone, but by his deeds. And though this might seem like a contradiction, it's not. Again, these guys are not in a theological cage fight. Think of it the other way. Think of it as they're back-to-back, back-to-back facing this way, and they're both going at a different opponent. What Paul is dealing with in the book of Romans is different from what James is dealing with in the book of James. They're coming at it from two very different beginning places. So think about it. So you got Paul, think of him facing this way, and he's making it clear to a group of people. He's saying, hey, you cannot be saved by your works. That does not bring a person into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. He's got a bunch of legalistic people saying, hey, look what I did. Look at me. 
Oh, look at my works. And what Paul is doing is he's driving the point home crystal clear. He's saying, no, you can't be saved by what you do. You're saved by what Jesus Christ has done. Period. You put your hope in your works, you're going to be hopeless. Don't do that. But then you've got James facing a different opponent. They're not fighting each other. Facing a different opponent. And he's coming at it from this different starting place. James is coming at it with a bunch of people. They profess faith in Jesus Christ. And he's insisting, though. He's giving them very strong language, insisting that their faith will be evidenced, not earned, but their faith will be evidenced by the things that they do, that their good deeds are the natural fruit of genuine faith, that good deeds are not the ground for faith, but good deeds are the fruit of it. If I planted an orange tree, and I planted that thing, and I watered that thing, I would expect that it would produce Oranges. Make sense? What James is saying is this. When the seed of faith, when God puts that in your heart, and God then brings the sun, and God waters that seed of faith, it's going to grow. Now, you might be a brand new Christian, and you're like, wow, well, man, my life has changed, but it's, and I can't see like ton of you know, fruit all over the place. You know what you are? You're a small plant. That's okay. Don't be overwhelmed by this passage. James isn't saying, hey, perfection. James is saying progress. James is saying that, wow, if, if my heart's truly transformed, I'm going to move towards the things of God, and over time, you will be able to look back and say, oh, I, I can see God, not me, God has been doing a work in and through me. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Very clear verses. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The very next verse. So think about what the setup is there. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. Hey, it's not about you. Not about your works because you shouldn't be able to boast in your salvation because God just redeemed you. William Wilberforce, he realized, I can't achieve my way to God. God, you've just been so good to me. And so anything I do is a response to your goodness to me. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, not about you. And then we get to ch uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the next verse. And then it says, for we are God's workmanship. So we're saved by grace, but we are God's workmanship. Here it is. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not, we're not, look at this. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not because of good works. And then it says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. They are the evidence and not the grounds of our faith. And James is saying, hey, don't just tell me about your faith. It should also be seen. It should produce. It's not something that you can earn, but your works, what will they do? They will give evidence that you truly are authentic. You are not imitation crab meat when it comes to faith. He's going to say you're the real deal. And it shows it by what you do. I want to close by taking us to a verse... Well, let me, let me actually close the passage out first. Look at verse 25. James concludes. He says, In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and they sent them off in, different, in, in, in a different direction? And then he says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, and he just drives it home one more time, so faith without deeds is dead. 
I want to end this way. I want to take us back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Because this is one of those core of the Gospel verses. And I want us to, to, to kind of leave on this note. It says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely. So that's apart from works. The ground level, groundwork. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so I just want you to ask yourself this question, church. Do you have the conviction in your heart? I need God. I've sinned against God. And it wasn't as though I sinned against God, but then I tried hard and I cleaned myself up and I got halfway to Him. No. It's like I sinned against God. And God is so holy, and He's so perfect, and He's so powerful, I didn't even come close to Him and His perfection. And in that place, in the place of my greatest need and the realization of who I am in light of a holy God, that's when, when I realized I had nothing to offer, that's when God redeemed me. And I just want to ask you, do you have that kind of a conviction in your heart? I need God. You know, the other night, one of our kids asked this question at the dinner table. Asked the question, how can I know if I'm right with God? And I thought to myself, this is an awesome question. I am so glad you're asking this question. The Apostle Paul commended people for asking that question. You know, our mission as a church, Rob said it earlier, it's to help people find and follow Jesus. Well, one of the things that's a part of that, the key thing, is how do we lead people to have a real faith, like an authentic faith? And so I want to leave you just this morning with just two simple questions. The first one is this. Number one, am I trusting in anything to earn God's favor? So think about that. Like when you think about this passage, even with James, and you hear about good works, is there any part of you that goes, okay, yeah, I put merit actually in what I do in order to have right standing with God. Are you trusting in any good deeds to earn your favor with God? Because you should not. Please hear that so clearly. You are justified freely. You are made right by God apart from anything that you could do. And then ask this question. Is my faith, is it like a seed that's been planted and it's growing? It might not be very big. That's okay. But is it growing? Like, is it truly a seed that's been planted and, and God's doing, you know, God's watering it and God's putting the sun on it and all of that? But can you say with confidence, okay, I'm definitely not at perfection, but I am at progress. Like I am continuing in my... That's what James wanted his readers to, to, to grapple with. He wanted them to go, hey, don't be just the kind of person that shows up and just, you know, you audibly say, yes, I'm a Christian. James is saying, no, I love you too much. I have to warn you with the scriptures. He's saying, no, I really want you to, to test your faith. I want you to ask yourself hard questions about your faith. Again, because even the demons give you know, verbal assent to that. But he's saying this, there's too much at stake. And so I want you to realize, okay, if you truly have faith over the course of time, God is going to grow you, he's going to mature you, and you're going to be able to look over the course of your life and go, you know what? Man, I went in the ditch again over there. But boy, I got back on the road by God's grace. And you know what? This walk with Jesus, we've traveled some distance. And I can look back and... There are some people in my life that thank God that I know God. Like it, it truly made a, a difference. That's what James is driving us to. So number one question, are you trusting in anything to earn the favor of God? Don't do that. 
Second question, has that seed really been planted in your heart? And if so, is it growing by God's grace? So let's pray to that end. Lord, I thank you this morning for James chapter 2. And um, Lord, I thank you you give us the grace to, to grapple with it. I thank you that you brought us here this morning. Lord, I thank you that you're the kind of God that when, when the gospel maybe isn't clear to us, Lord, your word allows it to become clear. And so, Father, thank you for the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray, and maybe you're here this morning, church, maybe you're here this morning and you would say this, you've been trusting in your works all along. Would you cry out to Jesus right now and you, would you say very plainly, Jesus, on this snowy day, I just want to say to you, I'm so glad I'm here because I don't want to trust in my ability anymore. I want to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's how I will be declared righteous in your sight. And so I put my faith in Jesus and what you have done, not what I could ever do. And then, Lord, for us that are believers in Christ, Lord, we pray that a passage like this would spur us on. But I pray that this week I would look at my life a little differently. And I would say, okay, what's the fruit of my faith? What's the fruit of it? Can people tell I'm different? I've been changed by Jesus Christ. Not because I must, but because of an overflow of who you are and your goodness to us. Lord, we love you. We pray now that you be glorified as we worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.